Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello, and welcome to Roman Comedy. I had to double check my notes to make sure this really is the first episode in the Roman Comedy course, which means we have more to talk about than just the play. So let's get started. I think Menander (laughs) threw me off on that. Um, Roman comedy derives from Greek New Comedy, which is why I kept forgetting that we hadn't started Roman yet. Um, In fact, many of the plays we'll read are copied from lost Greek originals. Um, So we may not know a lot of Menander, uh, directly, but we see um, revisions, copies, new versions of it um, that were written for the Roman audience. Um, they so yeah, so they were revised for Roman audience, but the bones are the same, and there are a lot of stock elements to them. Um, so most notably, we've got the characters and the sets. Um, which again, very similar to that Greek new comedy. Each set is basically the same. There are three doors upstage and entrances on the right and the left. Um, Typically, the three doors lead to houses. Sometimes the one center stage isn't used. There are no scene changes. Everything takes place on the street outside these three buildings. And the characters are frequently stock characters. The love-struck young man, the hen-pecking wife, the clever slave. And I'll point out these stock characters as we come across them. Another commonality is that these plays are thoroughly Roman in manners and relationships, but they are set in Greece because no self-respecting Roman would find himself, and yes, it's usually a man, in the situations presented. There are um, two surviving Roman comic playwrights. Uh, So we've got Terence and Plautus. The first we will cover is Titus Machius Plautus, or just Plautus for short. Um, Unfortunately, we really don't know much about who he was. His plays were written between around 205 and 184 BCE. Um, The order in which we'll cover them is a best guess at the order in which they were originally produced because the majority of them we don't have dates for. Um, So we know, oh, these are the early ones and these are kind of the middle ones and these are his later ones, but... The exact order within those groupings, bull, um, not not sure. Um, a remarkable twenty of his plays have survived, and you can see their influence on playwrights from Shakespeare to Sondheim. Unlike good old Aristophanes, there aren't a lot of translations of Plautus that are easily accessible. Um, you can find the Henry Thomas. Thomas Riley translations from 1912 for free at the Perseus Project through Tufts. Um, those same translations are available in a $3 ebook. It's the complete works. Um, so what I'll be using for most of these plays because I only own three of them in another translation. Um, we just did not cover nearly as much Plautus when I took um, took Greek and Roman uh, comedy and satire in college. So uh, the first play we're going to cover is Kistellaria, also known as the Casket Comedy, which will become clear as we go along. Um, As just noted, I'm working from the Henry Thomas Riley translation from 1912. I prefer something a bit more modern, but it's perfectly serviceable. Like many scan texts, it does have some issues and letters being transcribed incorrectly, but it's nothing that makes it impossible to understand. And frankly, if there's anything that makes any of these plays difficult to follow, 
it is the horribly complicated plots. Um, and since I don't think I can describe the characters without giving away some of the plot, we'll just take a short break and dive right in. Silenium Gymnasium and the Procurus enter from one of the houses. Silenium tells Gymnasium that she loves her as much as if they were sisters, and Gymnasium agrees. Silenium then admits to having fallen in love. The Procurus is unimpressed, particularly given that her living is made outside of marriage, shall we say. Um, Silenium says that she doesn't want to be a courtesan. She wants to get married. She describes how she met this young man, how he swore to her mother that he'll marry her, but now she's found out that he's already promised to another girl, the daughter of the man who lives in the other house on the street, but there's not a lot she can do about it right now. She's been called to visit her mother. Gymnasium has agreed to house sit for her. Silenium exits off stage, and Gymnasium exits into Selenium's house. Um, we'll see if I can get through all of these Latin names without tripping over my tongue too much. Um... We then get a backstory from the Procurus. You see, many years ago, she found a baby who'd been exposed, and she took the baby and gave it to her friend to raise. And the friend named that baby Silenium. And right around the same time, that friend gave birth. And if your brain works like mine, this is what's going through your head. A many years ago, when I was young and charming, as some of you may know, I practiced baby farming. Now this is most alarming. Okay, I'll stop singing Gilbert and Sullivan for you. Um, but back to Plautus. The friend told the Procurus that the father of her baby was a foreigner, so she wanted to palm it off. Clear as mud? Yeah, that's all the information she gives us before she exits. The god of help enters, and we finally have reached the pro prologue. He explains that the Procurus is both a talker and a tippler, so you can be excused for not understanding what she was talking about. But he's here to help and clear it up. Uh, many years ago, a merchant came from Lemnos for the festival of Bacchus. He, I'll use the word that's in this translation and we can discuss the complications later. Um, he ravishes a maiden. To his benefit, he does realize that this was not a good thing to have done, but instead of owning up to it, he flees back to Lemnos. The maiden, well, she becomes a mother nine months later, giving birth to a daughter. And since she doesn't know who the father is, she gives it to her servant to expose. And that's the baby that the Procurus finds and gives to the courtesan, Melanus. Meanwhile, the merchant gets married, and after a time, his first wife dies. He then moves back and marries the woman who he had ravished earlier. They must have some couples counseling because they actually talk about their prior relationship, if that's what it can be called, and she tells them of the daughter that she'd had and that she'd exposed. Um, so now they are trying to find that daughter that was given away so many years ago. Oh, and there's a young man who has fallen in love with her and she with him, which is just the most beautiful thing that is possible, and now all that remains is to resolve these matters. And the god of help, his job done, exits. Alkiza Marcus and Melanus enter. The former is our love-struck young man. Uh, he speaks to the woman he believes to be the mother of his love. They argue about the problem that he's promised to the daughter of this merchant from Lemnos, so he can't marry Silenium too. The argument ends with Alkiza Marcus storming off into his house, the third house of the three houses in our set. Um, Melanus shakes her head and steps aside, but does not exit. 
Lampadiscus enters, talking to himself, and Faunastrata enters, talking to herself. She is the wife of that Lemnian merchant and the birth mother to Silenium, so the poor young woman who was ravished um, many years ago. Lampadiscus is her servant. He has been following Melanus and determined that she has Faunastrata's daughter. Melanus overhears their conversation and worries about what he's saying about her. After Faunastrata exits, Melanus confronts Lampadiscus, who, asking who lives in that house. Demipho, he answers, the merchant from Lemnos. Melanus is no fool and quickly figures out that Demipho is the birth father of her foster daughter. After an extended conversation to clarify matters, Melanus realizes that the girl to whom Alcisamarchus is engaged is none other than Silenium herself. Melanus knows that it is time to return her daughter to her birth parents. They both exit. Melanus, Silenium, and Haliska enter. Haliska is another servant. Melanus instructs her to carry a casket filled with the trinkets that will allow Silenium's birth parents to recognize her and, uh, and to follow the girl, to follow Silenium to Demipho's house. Alcizamarchus enters, vowing to kill himself since he won't be able to marry Silenium. In the rush to stop him, Haliska loses the casket, and instead of killing himself, Alcizamarchus picks up Silenium, runs into his house, and yells to Haliska to bar the door. Not knowing what else to do, Melanus follows too. Lampadiscus enters. He sees the casket and picks it up. Fanostrata calls out, asking what he's up to. He tells her that he's found a casket lying in the street and gives it to her. She opens it and, of course, recognizes the trinkets found inside. Now she just has to figure out who dropped the casket. Like I said, it would be clear why this is sometimes also called the casket play. Haliska enters. She is distressed because she dropped the casket and now she can't find it. She asks the audience for help, which, depending on the audience, who knows, maybe they'll help. Um, Lampadiscus yells to Fanostrata that Haliska is the woman who's carrying the casket. They stop her from exiting, and she asks if either of them have seen the casket. Faunastrata spends time feeling out Haliska's motives, and when she is convinced, produces the casket and says that she's the mother of the baby to whom these trinkets belonged. After far more conversation, Faunastrata is convinced that Haliska knows who her daughter is, and they all exit. Demipho enters. He's come from the Senate. Like I said, these plays are Holy Roman, well being set in Greece. There's no Senate in Greece, but there is one in Rome. Uh, Lampadiscus tells him that his daughter has been found. They exit, and the play ends. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take a break and talk about what it all means in a minute. Yeah, this play ends very abruptly. I mean, honestly, that last scene is hardly necessary to the plot. Um, and it's interesting that we don't see any of the reunifications. We don't see um, Faunastrata and, um, and Silenium. We don't see Demipho and Silenium. We... We don't see um, we don't see the young lovers be told that they were betrothed to each other this entire time. The, the resolution is incomplete. It feels like there's something missing, <laughs> like like there's a whole big chunk of that last scene missing. Um, like it should be longer somehow. Um, but at the same time, we do have to remember 
there are a limited number of actors and so they're all playing multiple roles. They're only, there's only so much that can be done at a time on the ancient Roman stage. Um, today that's different. We put as many actors as we want on, on the stage at a time, but they, they only allowed so many people to speak at a time back then. Um, but that's not what we need to talk about. And I, I bet you know what we need to talk about the prologue the backstory to this entire play and this is where you may want to pause if you're listening with children um you could listen alone and then listen to this part again with your kids um because it is something that should be talked about or you could fast forward 30 seconds or, or so um starting now this play this comedy effectively starts with a rape and the rapist later marries his victim but not until after he's gone home married someone else and buried that first wife um this was not some fling that he had with a girl that he met it it was not a consenting relationship so we have to ask how much consent is there um in their ultimate marriage um, but we never we never see them together, which is interesting, because typically um, a wife as a stock character is some sort of overbearing woman who's just henpecking at her husband. Um, but because we barely see Demifo, um, Thanastrata is not a stock wife, which again is interesting given how their relationship which just, I don't like, I hate using that word with it because it's just icky um, how it started. Um, so instead we see her as as mother, not as wife. Um, and we see Demifo as who knows what. He is, he is there for such a short time, it's hard to assign any sort of stock character to him <laughs> because we hardly see him. Um, but their relationship, their relationship leaves something very uh, unsettling in this otherwise, you know, typical classic Roman comedy of mixed up confusion, um, farce going on. Um, so what do you think? How would you handle this for a modern audience? Um, how would you, how would you handle that backstory? Would you keep it set in ancient Rome or would you change the setting? It's an interesting thought. Come share your thoughts over on the blog. The link as always is in the show notes. On Wednesday, uh, we will read book 23 of the Iliad. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.